So, last month at the table, uh, we talked about a topic that breeds a lot of anxiety in our lives, right? What did we talk about last month? Money, finances, yeah. It breeds a lot of anxiety in um, this young adult season of life, but it also, that anxiety can continue on into the rest of our lives if we don't work hard to create healthy habits um, and ways of thinking around our finances now. And so that's why, as your young adult leadership team, as we were thinking and praying about what we feel like the Lord wants us to talk about this summer is money came to mind because it's so important that we build healthy habits now. And um, so last month we talked about how the temptation is often to find our security in our money and in our finances, right? We find security in how much is in our bank account, but as soon as we set that number in our bank account that we think will provide us security, then it doesn't, right? And the cycle just goes on and on, which causes more anxiety and fear and leads us into this thing called the scarcity mentality. And so... Then we looked at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 where Jesus explains that God is going to take care of our daily needs and we can't serve both God and money. So we have a choice to make, to serve God and to realize that our security is in him alone. And then and only then do we get to experience the abundant life that Jesus has to offer, right? So I hope you guys had good conversations in your small groups about that last month. Um... And tonight, I wanted to continue that conversation a little deeper and talk about the temptation of greed. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in James chapter 5 tonight. James chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It'll be up on the screen for you to follow along. Also, sorry to all my college students who are in summer Bible study right now. We're studying James, so you're going to hear a little bit of what we talked about, but it's okay, you'll be experts by the end of the summer. So James chapter 5, starting in verse 1, it says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which you have been with, which have, has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, and have lived like you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. So a little um, context to the book of James. James is written by the half-brother of Jesus. And James was a church leader um, in the church of Jerusalem. So his main audience were Jewish Christians. But the, the letter of James is more of accumulation of famous teachings from James and his writings that could benefit a lot of different Christians. And so... In his letter, um, he echoes a lot of Jesus' teachings, and specifically, you hear a lot of the similarities to the Sermon on the Mount, which is why I thought it would be fitting to go ahead and move here since we spent our time in the Sermon on the Mount last month. 
And the two main themes of the book of James is he has a, whole, he has a lot of passion for um, making sure we take care of the poor and the marginalized. And then he also is very passionate about making sure we realize that if we have truly experienced the good news of Jesus, then we can't live a life unchanged. Our life would be radically changed if we've truly experienced Jesus. And so with those being his two main points, this conversation of money and possessions plays right in. James is super passionate about it, and he stole this passion from his big brother, Jesus, who spent about 40% of the stories he's told teaching on how to deal with money and possessions. So Jesus thought it was a pretty big deal, and James followed suit. So this brings us back to our text. James here is warning the rich, or those who are striving to be rich, that things aren't going to turn out very well for them, right? There's going to be a lot of sadness and tears ahead. He uses very similar language as Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount, identifying that those who are storing up treasures on earth, those are the the treasures that moths can destroy and ruin. And then he says, your gold and your silver have rusted. And it's basically, he's saying it's going to be a proof of your downfall. And so I want to spend a minute thinking about this word rust here. When you think about rust, um, for me what comes to mind is something that has been sitting around and not being used, and, and it's eroding and rusting. And so for me specifically, um, this is a picture of my dad's GMC truck. It's a 1972 GMC, and it's super special to him because it's from his dad's dealership back in the day. And it's a really cool story how he found it. Like he literally saw someone driving it on the road and saw Stoltz, Roy Stoltz Motor Company, and he followed them home and was like, how can I get this truck? (laughs) Um, But years ago, he spent um, time and money fixing it up and painting it back to its original color. But from really as long as I can remember as a kid, it's been sitting in this spot in our driveway. And he doesn't drive it, and after he fixed it up, he didn't pay much attention to it. I mean, it's, it's fun to look at, but he doesn't do much else with it other than that. And so over time, this truck has gotten affected by the sun. You can see all the sun damage at the top, and then it started to rust in a lot of different places because it's just been sitting around, not being used for what it was intended to be used for and to take care of it. And um, I was looking how you prevent your vehicles from rusting. And according to Toyota's website, you have to get your car washed a lot. So make sure you wash your car. I haven't done that in a long time. But what James is saying here is that these people have let their money collect rust. Their money is sitting around. It's not been touched. It's not been used. The resources haven't been used for what they were intended to be used for. And these people are missing opportunities to be generous because of their greed. They're missing opportunities to be generous because of their greed, instead just letting their resources sit around and rust. And I don't think James is saying here that we can't be responsible with our money and have a savings account. Um, I mean, James doesn't really talk about a savings account, so I don't know what his opinion is, but there's a lot of different opinions out there. But what I think James is being really clear about is 
We should not just have money sitting around in order for us to live a luxurious life or what um, the U.S. determines a luxurious life when we have people around us in need or people in our community that are hurting or a neighbor that we could literally help right then and there. Um, so James is making it clear that we, we need to be able to access our resources and not just let them sit around and rest. And then he goes on to explain how the rich take advantage of people. They abuse and exploit and cheat their workers. In other words, when you get so caught up in greed, you don't care at what cost it is to other people. David Garland, who's a professor at Truett, the seminary right down the road, in one of his commentaries, he says, greed refers to the haughty and the ruthless belief that everything, including other persons, exists for one's own personal amusement and purposes. Essentially, it turns our own desires into idols. It is the overweening desire to possess more and more things and to run roughshod over other persons to get to them. It stands opposed to the willingness to give to others regardless of cost to self. Greed can crave after persons and is never satisfied by conquest, but always lusts for more. And so when I read this quote, the very first image that popped into my mind was something like this. Um, this is a picture from a Black Friday, and this is a day that people are just so greedy, right? Chasing after things that they think will make them happy, and they don't care at what cost to other people, right? And then there's this word in his quote, roughshod. Does anyone, does anyone know that mean? I, I can assume from context that it's not a positive word, but I had to look it up to see what it actually meant. And... Roughshod is a, a way of putting these shoes on a horse that has basically like nails sticking out of the bottom of the shoe. And what it was originally designed to do was to help the horse to be able to grip in rough terrain, especially like icy terrain, to help them from slipping. But then they eventually started using it as a war tactic as well because when, I mean, that was basically like a weapon on the horse's feet. And so what Garland is saying here is greed hypothetically causes us to run over people with track spikes, right? Like, this is a pretty brutal picture when you think about it. Greed, if you think about it in your life, makes you just run after whatever you want, and you don't think about the other people around you. You don't think about how it's affecting your neighbor. And this is also very counter to the way that Jesus sets the example of how to live, right? So you see James teaching here, saying when we get so caught up in our wealth and our possessions, we lose sight of the two great commandments given to us by Jesus. And what are those? What are those two commandments? Love your neighbor and love the Lord your God, Right? So when we get so caught up in our wealth and possessions, we're not loving the Lord because our possessions, our wealth has become an idol. And we're not loving our neighbor because our neighbor has become either a means to an end or competition. So that's, that's a problem, right? And then James ends by saying in this section, 
You put to death the righteous man. So he's talking about the rich. You put to death the righteous man. And so this righteous man could mean that, the righteous man could mean the um, oppressed, the people being oppressed by the rich. But the righteous man can also mean Jesus. Greed is a huge piece of what nailed Jesus to the cross. I mean, think about our sinful history. Think back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are put in this garden to enjoy so much beauty. There's everything that they could ever need. God's put them there to um, rule and enjoy the earth. But then he says, there's this one tree. There's this one tree that I don't want you to mess with, the tree of good and evil, right? And so they have everything that to live an abundant life, more than they could ever need. But this one tree catches their attention, right? Because they're greed. It's, there's, they have everything they could need, but it's not enough. Their curiosity and greed lend, leads them to the fall, the fall of humankind. And then sin enters the world, and people become greedy, and then they hide from God and turn on each other. And then greed is why in the Ten Commandments um, given to Moses by God, there's so many commands given that help fight against the sin and temptation of greed, right? Like, think about a few of them. Keep the Sabbath holy. That's a day that you were supposed to stop your work. So stop producing and stop making money, and then it's a day to stop consuming to get more and more stuff and release trying to be God. And then what about thou shalt not commit adultery, right? Greed that leads us to want something or someone that might even be someone else's spouse. Or thou shalt not covet. This is desiring or craving for something that you don't have, which is often motivated by what? Greed, right? And greed is why Jesus spends so much of his teachings talking about money and possessions and how harmful they can be if we've lost sight of where our true wealth is found. The sin of greed is named throughout scripture over and over again. Greed is a huge reason why Jesus died on the cross. Because what's the antidote to greed? Generosity, right? Generosity. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So let that sink in for a second. Jesus, who had everything, came down to earth, to be fully human, to experience poverty here on earth, to experience the pain that we go through, to experience um, being abandoned by his father on the cross. He became poor so that we could become rich. This is the most radical act of generosity, right? And this isn't 
um, so that we could become rich by the world standards of being rich, right? This isn't a prosperity gospel kind of thing that if you follow Jesus that you're going to have all the material wealth that you could ever need. No, this is eternal richness. This is the type of wealth that moths and rust can't touch. This is eternal life with God in heaven. And so what James is getting at here is that if we have encountered this radical act of generosity, which is the gift of Jesus, then our response can't help but be radical generosity in return. Our life should no longer be defined by greed, but finding ways to love, share, and to give. So I want to spend the rest of our time tonight talking about some practical ways that we can be generous, that we can fight the temptation of greed that I know is knocking on all of our doors, whether you realize it or not, and how we can practice realizing that our money and our stuff isn't our own. So I think the, the first practical way to start being generous with our money is to start giving to your local church. Whether that's Vista or somewhere else, um, it is so important that we are giving a part of what we make to the local church. We say here at Vista to give regularly, sacrificially, and joyfully. And when we give a portion of our hard-earned money, it allows us to surrender that to the Lord through the local church. And we here at the Vista say that it doesn't have to be 10% because for some people, 10% is not enough. That doesn't even affect you at all. And so you should give more than that. And for some people, you just need to start somewhere with your giving. But we'd say to start somewhere and to do something that allows you to be joyful and sacrificial and you're giving. Because Matthew 6, 21, which we covered last week, says that where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So giving a portion of your hard-earned money allows this act of worship to show that your heart is invested in God's bride. And for me, when I started giving to the Vista, um, it, it changed something in me, and I was, just felt this level of commitment here. And I think back to when I was a kid, and my parents would have me pay for something with my own money, you know, like your own money as a kid, it's so special. And when you pay for something with your own money, it's so much more valuable to you. You're going to take better care of it, and you're going to feel more ownership of it. And in the same way, I think when we invest our money into our church where we call home, it allows us and helps us to feel ownership and feel invested here or wherever your church home is. And you want to be there on Sundays because you're, you're part of it. And you're excited to see what the church is doing to bless other people in our community and our world because you're a part of that. And so... I want us to think about, are we willing to commit some of our income to the local church as a step to be generous with our money? 
And then another fun idea, when you budget that aside, um, a couple in our small group does this really well, but they have this fun money line item to be generous with. And so this line item allows them to be creative in ways to maybe bless a couple and send them out on a date night or be able to buy someone's groceries that's in need. And so I just, I thought that was a fun thing to think about, like, okay, how can I budget a line item where I just get to be creative and being generous? And even if that's starting with $10, you know, like buying someone's drink at Starbucks or something, um, think about fun ways to get to bless people. And then next, I would seek out We all need to seek out accountability with our money. And I think this is where things get a little tricky, right? Because our money and our resources, we think that that's a personal, private matter, right? We think our money should be autonomous and individualistic. And why is that? Why is that the way that we function? I'm not exactly sure why, But I also, I want us to think, like, why are we willing to share with people we trust, or maybe even sometimes we don't trust, about um, our mental health, or about sex, or politics, but we're so reluctant to share about our finances. And I think a lot of that is because culturally, we can often be defined, our value can be defined by how much money we make. Like, that's what culture says in a lot of ways. And so then it's a very vulnerable, scary thing to talk about how you're doing financially. Or maybe you're um, insecure about how you're stewarding stewarding your money, or maybe you're embarrassed that you don't even know what to do with your money, and so you don't even know where to start, so you'd rather just not bring it up, right? And then on a whole nother level, when we start to be vulnerable about our finances and talk about it and seek accountability in our community, there's this temptation for comparison and jealousy to arise, right? Like, in some ways, you're inviting the enemy in to try and get in your head in that way. And I know for me, as we have, as a small group, have tried to start to be more vulnerable about how we're doing financially, it's really hard to sometimes sneak in and be like, uh, I'm jealous of that person. Or, oh, they should bring the main course to small group because they can afford it more than I can. (laughs) But we have to not let that scare us away from being vulnerable and seeking accountability with our finances. Because, y'all, community is going to be messy. True Christian community is going to be messy. And we... Um, we have to fight when the enemy tries to turn us against each other. And so it might not look like in your small group laying out your whole bank account, or maybe it should. Like, that's up to you and the people that you're in community with of what you want this accountability to look like. Um, But inviting people in your life to speak truth into your finances and be able to ask you the hard questions or to be able to call you out when they notice you're headed down a dangerous path. In Acts 2, starting in verse 43, talking about the early church, it says this, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe 
and the many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And this is such a beautiful picture of this group of believers that have gathered together, having everything in common. In reference to this passage, Walter Brueggemann says this, says the early church denied the autonomy of money and viewed such autonomy concerning money and possessions as an unacceptable alternative to the gospel. So yes, money can be autonomous and individualistic, but is that how we as believers should view our money and our possessions? Should we be fighting against the, the ideas that we should be private about our money and bringing in our community. One pastor um, that I really respect, he has this rule that if he wants to spend any, over $1,000 on anything, he has to go to his accountability group and say, hey, this is what I want to buy, here's why. Do you think that's wise? Um, and do you think I really need this? Does my family really need this? Is this what I should be doing? And I think that's a really cool thing to set in place. And for me right now, like $1,000 is a lot. And so maybe you should lower that budget to like $200 or something. But um, thinking about ways to implement accountability like that. Or maybe in your small group, it looks like asking, hey, how are y'all doing giving? Is that something that you're doing right now? Why or why not? Um, How are you finding ways to be generous with your money and with your resources? Uh, Or maybe it looks like y'all sitting down and making a budget together and thinking through, hey, where where should we be spending our money? Um, How can we do this better? But you really, really need community to call you out when you're getting greedy and challenge you to be generous with your money. And then with this passage in Acts that we read, it talks about literally sharing their property in common. And I love this idea because I think that for a lot of us, we think that we have to actually own something to be able to enjoy it. But that's not true. Like, what if with your community, with your group of friends, with your small group, if you got together and made a list of all the things that you could be sharing instead of having to go out and buy it on your own? And my small group actually did this last summer, and it's been a really, really cool experience for us to think about the things that we have to offer to each other, like kayaks and KitchenAid mixers and carpet cleaners and, like, think about all the random things that you don't really need to own, you know? Because um, how many, like, everybody doesn't need a kayak, right? I mean, it would be awesome to take an epic small group trip kayaking, but realistically, how often are you going to do that, Right? So why not share it? And how often do you really need to use a KitchenAid mixer? I mean, I use mine maybe once a month. Um, So why not share it when you need it? And the cool thing about sharing things in common is it requires you to talk to the other people and to go to their houses or their apartments and interact with them. And what does that do? continues to build connection and relationships and community. So I'd really challenge you guys to find ways to do that.
And then lastly, this might be something you talk about with your community, um, but noticing where you have access and you're letting things rot or rust that you could be giving away. One super practical example of this is our food consumption. We as Americans eat or think we need quite a bit of food and we're really greedy with our food. We buy more food than we need. Um, One stat that I found says this, the United States discards more food than any other country in the world. Nearly 40 million tons, 80 billion pounds every year. That's estimated to be 30 to 40% of the entire U.S. food supply and equates to 219 pounds of waste per person. That's like every single one of us throwing away 650 average-sized apples right into the garbage, or rather, right into landfills. Um, Because, in fact, food is the single largest component taking up space inside U.S. landfills. So that's pretty crazy, right? Like, there's so much food insecurity around us, yet most of us are throwing away an average of 219 pounds of food a year because we think we need way more at the grocery store than we really do. So what if, like, that's just a super practical example of thinking about ways that you could be more frugal or intentional with the things that you're buying and so that you can be generous instead. So these are just some ways that we can fight the sin of greed, which is deadly to our relationship to God and to other people. So let's be people who don't get caught up in living in the luxury of the world and hurting other people in the process. Let's be people who value eternal wealth that Jesus has to offer and live a life inspired by his ultimate example of generosity. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful to get to gather together here and talk about some things that are hard, um, that can be awkward to talk about. But God, I pray that we would just be inspired by the generous gift that you sent to earth your son to die on the cross for our sins and that as we truly let that radical act of generosity sink in deep into our soul deep into our bones that we would leave this space changed desiring to reflect your generosity to us, that we would be people who, even though the world is trying to tell us we need more and more stuff to live a luxurious life, that we would realize that that's not the life that we want. That's not the life that's going to bring true joy. It's not a life with hope a life with a lot of tears ahead. So God, I pray that you would put a craving in our hearts for eternal wealth and that we would be willing to make sacrifices along the way so that we can love people like you've called us to love them.
God, I pray for our small groups that this would be the start of a really cool conversation that it would only bring us closer so that we can honor you more. We love you and it's in your name. Amen.